All right, so uh, I actually made two uh, handouts uh, today, and I only gave you one. Uh, the handout, th this handout has been in the more recent pattern, which is basically I kind of stand up here and tell you what I think about every verse. So it's almost become a little bit like a mini sermon. Uh, that's not what this Bible study has generally been like. Most of the time it's been me asking questions and then listening. So uh, I instead uh, did a second handout, which I gave to you, which is a series of questions under the verses. And uh, I would like to kind of go back more to that pattern and then weigh in as I see fit. Now, there's a little bit of a risk. I talked to both Wes and Andy about this. And the risk is something we generally call crickets, if you know what I mean. Like I ask a question and, uh, you know, crickets. A, a secondary risk is that two or three of you will feel comfortable sharing and no one else. Um, so I would very much like uh, more of that kind of uh, dialogue, but I also have no, no problem kind of weighing in and, and giving thoughts on each of these uh, verses. So I would like to have more of a Q&A format, so please be ready. And uh, if I get a lot of crickets, I'll just call on you, you know, by name uh, or something like that. A sheer terror goes through the room. No, I won't do that. I am mindful of the complexity of this chapter and indeed of this whole section. I'm mindful of it. I know that. I know, understand that's why there'd be reticence to answer some of these questions. But as I wrote them uh, this afternoon, I, I thought that, that you would have uh, the the ability to weigh in on, on some of these things, because we've been uh, talking about this for a while, and it's very much tied to the verses themselves. So I very much would like to hear uh, from you, but I, I have no problem uh, giving my own thoughts. So I would love somebody uh, to read the section we're going to look at uh, tonight. I don't think we're going to get to the end of the chapter, but uh, Romans 9, uh, we're in 19 through 32. If somebody could read that for us, I would appreciate it. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and here, who, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay as is Isaiah's predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, 
a righteousness that is by faith. But the, that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on the works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. One more verse. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Yeah, I know. I, I just said a 32, so thanks. Get the end of the chapter. Thank you very much. All right. So um, let's begin with the first section. One of you to say to me, why do this, then why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Or why does God still blame us? Uh, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for uh, noble purpose, some for common use? That's NIV 84. All right, first question. Um, before I dive in, just a quick uh, uh, review, first 18 verses. Um, Paul is addressing the problem in Romans 9 of the Jews. Why is it his own people are almost universally rejecting Christ? We know that he's talking about the Jews because um, uh, he openly says it in verses 3 through 5. Um, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for my own people, uh, my brothers, etc., the fellow fellow Jews. And then he goes through their spiritual advantages, and then he brings up his first and central concern. It is not as though God's word had failed. It's not that God has failed here. It's not that God has been trying to save them, and he has failed. That's not what's going on. Then he goes from that into the issue of um, election. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There's a group within a group. Um, we're going to bump into this word even in, at the end of chapter 9, the word remnant. Uh, there's a remnant uh, that is being saved. There's a group within the group. And so just being physically descended from Abraham doesn't save anyone. So he brings up the case study of, of uh, Ishmael and then Isaac. And Isaac is the child of the promise, not Ishmael. And then Jacob and Esau. Uh, again, Jacob, uh, the child of the promise, not Esau. And so uh, he sums up then saying everything depends on God's sovereign will, God's sovereign choice. It does not depend on man's desire, effort, but on God who has mercy. Fundamentally, it comes down to that. And then he brings up uh, Moses and uh, Pharaoh as paradigm examples of the elect and reprobate. Moses uh, asked to see God's glory, and God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have, uh, you know, God doesn't have to show his glory to anyone. And so Moses is a sinner. We're all sinners. But God, uh, in his kindness, has mercy. It's not a matter, therefore, of justice, but of mercy. It's nothing that God owes to anyone. Um, so fundamentally, it, it depends uh, only on God's sovereign uh, grace. And then uh, concerning Pharaoh, then he's the example of the reprobate like uh, Esau was. Um, and God says to him, or scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Um, he doesn't mention hardening there, but he does in the next verse. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Um, Romans 9.18 uh, is basically God's approach to the entire human race. It's his approach to every human being that's ever born or ever will be born. Every single person gets one or the other from God. There's no third category, and God isn't confused about what he's doing. He's not wondering what to do. He knows who everyone is, and he's acting accordingly. Now, we cannot tell specifically in this world who the reprobate are. That's impossible for us to tell. We can tell 
who the converted elect are if they behave like Christians, all right? If they talk like Christians and they speak well about the gospel and they live out the Christian life, we can say, like Paul says to the Thessalonians, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, and you lived a new life. You got rid of your idols, you changed, etc. So therefore, when you see those kinds of, that kind of fruit, you can say, you're elect, you're chosen. You know, if you look at the end of Romans, he, he says, uh, I think Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother has been a mother to me too. So here's Rufus who's elect. Well, how does he know that? Well, because of how he's living, but, but the way he talks, just fruit. But the opposite you can never do in this life. All right. And why is that? Why can we not identify ever the reprobate in this world, in this present age? Reprobate. Those that will definitely go to hell. They might repent later. And based on 10.1, uh, what does he say? And what, what does 10.1 uh, uh, say? Romans 10.1. Brothers, I What is Paul saying there? What does he want for the unsaved Jews? He wants them to be saved. And he's praying for them. Is that all he's doing? No. He's going to synagogues and reasoning with them. Does he expect they're going to roll out the red carpet? Well, maybe the first day, uh, but not a week later. Not a month later, he, it's going to divide. It's what always happens, all right? But he's still going to go after it. That should be our attitude, too. Somebody could be living very, very badly, but we always are thinking there's always a chance, right? There's always a chance, even to the end of their lives, even to the very end of their lives. So the thief on the cross, they might, at the very end, repent and come to Christ. So we never lose hope in this life. All right, but today, tonight, we're going to talk about what about from Judgment Day and beyond. Now, what about that? What kind of clarity comes at that moment? And I think that's pretty significant. But at any rate, God, however, he's not wondering. He's not unsure. He knows exactly who everyone is. And so that's uh, fundamentally what he's saying up to 1, uh, 9, 1 through 18. All right, now we get to this objection. And what is the objection that Paul raises here in verse 19? I think it's a logical follow-up uh, on in the previous one. Uh, it's basically uh, the person is saying people ask this question. They're really questioning: well, Is God right to do to deal with people the way He does? And the uh, the previous question asked is: Is there injustice in that? So it's very similar to that pattern of questioning. So it feels unjust. It feels unfair. In this case, it says, why does God find faults or blame us or whatever? What is that referring to? Because he's, uh, he's just finished saying, he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Mm -hmm. That is really of God's sovereign choosing. But we're talking the way that God finds fault ultimately is what? What's the ultimate fault finding that God does? Yeah, ultimately. Right, and I think fundamentally what we're talking about ultimately is hell, right? Condemnation. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for... That's God finding fault with people, right? So the question here is, it's wrong for God to blame anyone. It's wrong for God to condemn anyone. Why? That seems to be the implication here. Why, though? What's the logic behind it? What are the assumptions behind that accusation? That it would be wrong for God to find fault with anyone. Because if, if you're hardened, you can't make the choice, so it's not up to you. Okay. 
And how does, in verse 19, he specifically looks at God's capabilities in all this. What does he say about God's capabilities in this whole matter? Who can resist his will? Meaning what? Who can resist God's will? Does God's will win over human will? Well, we've been saying that. Does it, it win over human will in every case? Yes. Every time God reaches out his hand to save someone, they get saved. So then the question is, why doesn't God save everyone? That's, that's the implication. Do you see that in 19? That's about what he's saying. Why does God send anyone to hell? Because God can save anyone he wants to. All right? And didn't Jesus say that when he talked about how hard it is for rich people to get saved? Remember that? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Disciples, all right, well, who then can be saved? And what was his answer? With man, this is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. What is Jesus saying there? I can save anyone. He's claiming it openly. I can save anyone. Then why don't you save everyone? That's what's going on in verse 19. Do you see that? If God can save anyone, if who resists his will, then why does he condemn anyone? All right, and what's the answer? How does the question get answered? Don't talk back. Don't talk back. <laughs> right. That's how he answers it. Who are you, O oh man, uh, to talk back to God? All right. So that's what the, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought was needed at that moment. It may not be satisfying, emotionally satisfying, to the person who needs to hear that rebuke the most. Right? The more you need to hear that rebuke, the more juiced up you're going to be anyway against God, right? And it's like, that's no answer. That's, you know, all that does is make me upset, right? But why is it beneficial for us to get that rebuke at this point, to hear that kind of rebuke? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Why is it beneficial for all of us to kind of sit under that rebuke and feel its weight? Why do it, Tom? Why do we need that reminder? <laughs> you know, Pastor, I, I confess last time we were here, I don't know what I do because I'm sinful. Well, okay, would you, just well, how many of us generally have a problem with God's authority in our lives? Anyone having a, a problem with that? Anybody pushing back on God's will and God's laws and all that? Is that not the essence of our sin problem? Therefore, is it not the essence of our salvation that we submit to King Jesus and do what he wants and he's our king and we obey him? If you love me, you will obey me. Jesus is saying that, right? Forever. Part of loving me, Jesus would say, is to love my kingship and my sovereignty and my right to rule over you. You should love that. You should delight in that. And guess what? We will. That's so, so amazing. Greg, go ahead. Yeah, I think right along with that goes the conviction that uh, I can trust him. I don't have to have the answer. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. So. What he chooses to reveal, I enjoy that, that which he doesn't reveal, I can rest in. Amen. And he doesn't end all discussion. The chapter doesn't end. The whole discussion doesn't end. I told you this thing goes on for three chapters. He gives a lot more information after that rebuke. But before we proceed, everyone needs to get rebuked. We all need to realize he's the creator, we're the creature. And asking questions is fine. Questioning isn't. So if you ask an honest question, you get an answer, all right, to within the limits of what God's willing to reveal. And if 
you don't get the answers, you just say, we're fine with that. We're, we'll accept it. But there's a murmuring, rebellious questioning of God. That's what this is addressing here. And the, this topic brings that out. It tends to make people do that. All right, now the next topic he brings up are the pot, uh, potter's rights. And he, we're going to talk more about that. But uh, what are the potter's rights here? And how are they relevant to human salvation and condemnation? Shall what is form say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, etc.? Well, I've done pottery. I've done pottery. And as the creator, you make what you want. And the the potter determines the value of what they've made. Mm -hmm. And if you want to take what you made and you see there's things that you're not content with, Mm -hmm. you strip the clay off the wheel and put it in a big lump Yeah, reshape it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or put it in a big lump outside. What does that mean, a big lump outside? Because it piles up. (laughs) Okay, so that's like reject clay? Reject clay that you then try again with. Uh Which is exactly what's going on here in in these verses. How much of us were made out of reject clay? All of us. That's the whole point. The whole pile was rejected. All right? So Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth. He's like clay, right? And not just neutral clay, sinful, rebellious, wicked clay. And all of his descendants are in that pile. We're all from that, that pile of clay. So why is it, what is the significance of that concept? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay two types of vessels? What's, why is it beneficial to understand it? What is, what is that the, the significance of that phrase that we, we're all coming from that same lump of clay, what you called reject clay. Kind of levels everything at everyone else. Like that one is like highly present, high quality clay and low quality clay. Right. Like we're all in the same playing field. Yeah. It's up to the potter to determine what he's going to use for his purpose and maybe not so much. Exactly, exactly. It's very humbling. And remember that the whole purpose of this entire exercise, twofold purpose, that we be humble and that we be secure or assured. Those are the two things that come from this whole meditation. We get humbled by this, but we also get a sense of security, a sense of assurance of our salvation. All right, so we're all made out of the same lump of clay, and that's very humbling. All right, now verse 21 says, uh, speaks of <clears throat> vessels of honor. And by the way, this forming and shaping, we talked about that last time. We are in process. Every human being is being formed and shaped We're being prepared for destiny, right? We're being prepared either for glory or for for condemnation or hell. There's a a shaping or preparing. Unlike God, who is not developing, God isn't being shaped by any of this. He's unchanging. But we are being shaped and molded and crafted, etc. And actually both sides are. So there's this shaping and forming. So the potter has the right to make, it says, out of the same lump of clay, as we talked about, some pottery for noble purpose, some for common use. That's NIV's translation. Vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor, or it's just got the uh, Greek negation, tim, uh, the T-I-M, Tim, like uh, uh, it means honor, and then A is not. So like a, like a wooden translation would be vessel of honor and vessel of not honor. 
And if you want to expand it a little bit by synonyms, it's like vessels of glory and vessels of no glory. That seems to be the two things that we're talking about here. And I think the glory is the glory of God. It's, it's, it's having the indwelling Holy Spirit, the glory, the light of the radiance of the glory of Christ within us, shining within us. Though we are vessels of clay, there is an, a, a, a glory in us that's put there by the gospel and by the Spirit. And we have that, don't we? We've got that indwelling spirit and that radiant glory in us. And they don't. That other vessel doesn't. Clay, go ahead, brother. Um, yeah, I was going to touch on that because uh, I feel that the potter does it the way he needs to. But God the Father, uh, Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 speaks on this. Mm-hmm. It says that, um, for it is God that who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And he does it for the way he needs us to do it because it says, um, thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, let's talk more about the potter's rights. Verse 22, 23. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of wrath, of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So first of all, why do you think Paul couches his question here in the what if pattern? It's an unfinished uh, question. What do you think he means in his mind concerning this question, this unwritten part? What if God, etc.? Why does he phrase it like that? I think that, I think phrase like that it provokes thought. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 rather than just coming out and just flat out stating that that's what God's doing, mm-hmm. when he says what if uh, a flat-out statement might quickly elicit a rejection, uh-huh. and this would be less quick to elicit a rejection. It could elicit thought. So is Paul, like, saying, let me float an idea? Yeah. Is that what you think he's saying? <laughs> no. Do you think he's actually teaching that this is what God does? Yeah. Yes. And yet he couches the what if. It seems that he's, Paul is constantly aware of, like, a debating partner or even an enemy of what he's saying. And so he couches it in this kind of rhetorical terms, like you want to debate, all right, try this one on for size. And I, I think the rest of the concept is, if God does that this way, what's your response going to be? Are you going to fight it? Are you going to be angry about it? Are you going to submit to it and accept it? What are you going to do? God already knows what he's going to do, and he's already doing it. And he's not wondering about, gee, I wonder if, the, if my numbers, my poll numbers will be good on this one. He's not worried about that at all. God is God. But the question is, what are you going to do? What if God does this? What is your response going to be? Are you going to think God's unjust? Are you going to think God's unrighteous? Well, how are you going to respond? So it's, it's almost like in that context of, which is throughout the book of Romans, someone's listening, and it's like one of you will say to me, or I, I know what you're going to say, you're going to push back here, et cetera. And I think that's why he couches it like that. Pastor Davis, I think it's interesting that you share this because I heard a message two and a half years ago. Pastor Charles Stanley said, don't ever doubt or question what is going on, ask God the Father way you can learn from what is going on. Okay. Well, people, yeah, thank you. People do question this. All right, so we've already talked about the uh, vessels of dishonor or no honor. Uh, The reprobate show the glory of God indirectly and unintentionally. All right, indirectly and unintentionally, but they do show the glory of God. Um, We'll talk about that, but they're called vessels of dishonor or no glory. 
Um, according to verse 22, what is God's purpose in creating and sustaining the reprobate, the not elect? To make his power known. To make his power known. Okay. Choosing to, sh and not just his power, what else? His wrath. The first thing it says, God wants to show his wrath. So that's why they exist. God wants to show his power. That's why they exist. And God wants to show his patience. That's why they exist. So what of this showing or make known language? What does that teach you? The whole, it's like a display thing. God wants to put all the stuff on display. What do you make of that? Why is it important for God to put himself, his nature and his works on display? I'm sorry? So everyone can see. Well, why does he want that? Why does he want everyone to see who he is and what he's done? For his glory, that is the glory, right? It's a radiant display of who he is, of his greatness, his majestic person. He wants to put himself on display. And why is that? Because he's insecure and needs some friends to affirm him, right? He wants that approval, all right? We all need that, right? That is not what's going on. God doesn't need anything from his creation. He is a very confident being, let's put it that way. And he's not wondering whether he's glorious or not. He knows very well that he's glorious. He wants us to know that he's glorious. Why? Because he's generous. Because he's loving. He wants to give of himself to created beings. So that we've got this display language uh, concerning his attributes. In other words, if you want to ask the question, why does God make the reprobate at all? The answer is to put himself on display. To put himself on display. All right, now who is the audience of that display? In these verses. In the verses... Who's watching and benefiting from that display? Those who he's going to show his mercy to. The, uh, yeah, the objects of his mercy are the audience here. You see that in verse 23? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? We're the audience. We're what he's doing it all for. He wants to put himself on display so that we would know his greatness and his majesty. And so the riches of his glory. By the way, glory is a comprehensive term for all of God's attributes. Not just his saving attributes, but his already mentioned power, uh, wrath, power, and patience. That's, that's, those are attributes as well. Right? So he wants to put all that on display for the objects of his mercy. We are the... Uh, uh, we are the audience, the understanding audience. And not just us, but angels as well, as they're clearly tracking in the book of Revelation, clearly tracking what God's doing. And they're very interested. So that's what we're looking at. That's uh, the, God's purpose. Now, here's the question I, I would ask. Are God's purposes in and through the wicked on full display here on earth? Or is there more to learn beyond this present age? In other words, when is the fullest display of God's uh, uh, wrath, in the order of his wrath, power, and patience. When does that full display happen when it comes to the wicked? Can you see it on earth now? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to take a stab at this just because we just finished studying the book of Revelation. Uh -huh. Revelation. Okay. And so I'm going to say because 
uh, we're going to say at that time, when, when Christ comes again, that will be the, when he comes again, that will be the greatest display of his wrath, power, but also patience. Uh-huh. Okay. We, as we went through that book, we saw so, patience. In the events of the end times, Tribulation. culminating in the second coming. Tribulation. All of that. Okay. All right. Uh, and that's it. Then there's nothing more after that. No more learning happens after that. Well, oh, an eternity of learning. I think it just starts there. I think God did so much with 5,000, 6,000 6, years of wicked people that we don't know point oh 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 one percent of what he did in and through them. And frankly, we're localized. We're only, we can only see what we can see where we were standing on earth, even at the second coming. There's some things that God probably will do to the forces of Antichrist that only the people standing right there even knew about. Does God want us to know it all? He's not hiding anything from us. So let's talk about between now and, and long before the second coming. This passage that I came across in Job 21 is interesting. Someone read that for us on the handout. Job 21, 7 through 13. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows, calves do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambourine and harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Huh. Now that's interesting. Where is the display of God's power, wrath, and patience there? There isn't. The wicked did well, they prospered, and they died in peace, and everything was good for them. They beat the system. That's what Job's saying. And if you know anything about the book of Job, you realize what a big deal that is in the whole argument that his friends are bringing up and all that. It's like, hate to tell you, friends, but the wicked actually seem to do really well. God doesn't always beat up on them. As a matter of fact, he mostly doesn't. Mostly doesn't. And even if they do die, like Hitler and his cronies in some bunker, reinforced concrete bunker down below Berlin, are they getting paid back for all the wicked things they've done by taking a cyanide capsule? That's a display of the wrath of God? Well, it's a partial display, but not a full display. And so fundamentally, the education in God's power, wrath, and patience must be after Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Or a really, 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 really long and detailed Judgment Day, which isn't a day. All right? So I really think that that's eternity. That God really wants to put his actions comprehensively on display for his elect for all eternity. Now the question is, when I wrote my book on heaven, I had to deal with this question. Do the righteous in heaven, when all said and done, long beyond the tribulation, long after the second coming, after judgment day, everything's done. They're in the new Jerusalem and the wicked are in the lake of fire. Are they aware of the damned? What do you think? Are they aware of the damned? Who they are? Complete. 
All right. Are they aware of the history of the damned? Of, of what they did in life? Is there any indication that, that the righteous in heaven are aware of the history of the damned in hell? Yes. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. All right. Let's talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. How does that give evidence that the righteous in heaven are aware of the history of the damned? Well, you remember the story. There's a rich man and there's this beggar named Lazarus. And the rich man lived in opulence and purple every day, feasting and all that. And the beggar was laid at the gates and the so dogs came and, and licked its sores and all that. And he never got anything off the rich man's table, right? They both died. And the beggar, uh, uh, Lazarus, was carried to Abraham's side or bosom, so to speak. And the rich man was in hell, in torment. And then in Christ's parable, there's a conversation between the rich man in hell and Father Abraham. And what does he want? He said, would you please come dip your finger in some water and cool my tongue because I'm in torment here in the fire. Remember that? And what does Abraham say? He said, remember my son. Calls him his son. So you're my physical descendant. Remember my son, that you had good things on earth and Lazarus had nothing. Actually, he wants Lazarus to come <laughs> and help him. That's right. I forgot that. He, he says, have Lazarus come and dip his finger. And he had nothing. Um, so stop right there. What's the significance of that statement? Remember, son, that in your life you had good things and Lazarus had nothing. What does that tell you about the very question I'm asking here? Do the righteous in heaven, are they aware of the damned and their history? Clearly they are. Second question. Are they distressed about the condition of the damned? Is there any evidence that Abraham or Lazarus are deeply distressed and troubled? by the rich man's torment? Not at all. Do they think that it's right and just what has happened concerning all of this? They do. Now, here's my question. Why is it beneficial for the righteous in heaven to be aware of the damned and their history? Why is it beneficial? Why would God do that? Why would God teach us the history of the damned? Is it part of the history tapestry? It's not a small part. It's a big part of it. It's, you can't not tell the story without telling their story too. And God's display of his power and his patience. Let's talk about the word patience. God bore with great patience the object of wrath. How will you see that except that you know their story? How patient God was with them. What was the nature of his patience with them? How many messengers of the gospel he sent their way? See what I'm saying? How he dealt with them and how patient he was with them. That's an education, isn't it? And so you're looking at that and, and it's a sense of that. Here's another thing. Uh, do you remember um, the, uh, the parable of the, um, of the persistent widow? Mm -hmm. What's the story of that? The persistent widow uh, goes to the judge. What's the judge like in that parable? You remember that? He talks about himself. He's, he's an interesting guy. He's, he, he cared nothing for men and didn't care about justice, something like that. I don't care about people or God. Remember that? He's like something like that. Very harsh statement. He makes it about himself. I don't fear man. I don't fear God and I don't care about people. But I'm sick of this widow, right? She's going to wear me out by coming to me day after day. So I'm going to give her what she wants. That's it's an interesting parable, right? 
it's kind of a how much more. God isn't like that. God's a loving, wise, just father. It's like a how much more argument. You should therefore persistently go to God. But then he goes to another level with that. He says, and will God deny the, the cry of his people who are crying day and night for what? What does the widow want? Justice. He will see that they get justice and quickly. All right. When do they get justice? When do they get justice against their oppressors? According to Job 21, they don't get it in this life. Their rich oppressors go to the grave in peace. Doesn't it say also, vengeance is mine, I will what? I'll pay back, I'll repay. Does he want us to know when he's done that? Does he want us to feel vindicated by his repayment? Does he want his oppressed people to feel they had a vindicator who saved them and judged their oppressors? Do you remember the uh, fifth seal and the seven seals? Do you remember the fifth seal is broken? And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been martyred for the word of God. They're up there in heaven. And what are they crying for? They all want one thing. They want vengeance, justice. Vengeance, they're the same thing, aren't they? They want vengeance. They're in heaven and they want vengeance for their oppressors. And are they told, that's not appropriate. We should love everyone. Is that what they're told? No, they say, you're going to get it, just not yet. And they're each given white robes and told to wait for a while until the full number of martyrs comes in. And then all of them are going to get justice, right? They're all going to get vengeance. Are they going to see it? Are they going to know what happened? They have to, therefore, know the backstory of the persecution. And as I've argued, we're not only going to care about justice for us, in our case, we'll care about justice for all of our brothers and sisters against all, all time in every era of history. We'll care about all of it because it's all God's story, isn't it? We'll want to know the whole story. So how much of all the people in hell are we going to learn about? All of them. And how God used them, orchestrated their wicked intentions for big and small purposes and how he was glorified, how he showed those people patience. He used them. He blocked their wickedness, protected his people, but sometimes allowed them to persecute and even martyr some of them. It, whole story. But I believe, as Revelation 21.4 says, there'll be no more death, mourning, crying. crying, or pain. So there is no mourning, crying, or pain on the part of the redeemed as they learn this story. As they learn the story. That includes relatives and loved ones on earth. Zero regrets. Because think about it this way. Think about it this way. If there were some regrets, what's the limit to that regret? How much of your heavenly day will you spend weeping over the damned? See what I'm saying? We'll spend a third of it weeping and then we'll celebrate the rest of the time and enjoy our time with God. That's a little weird, isn't it? Doesn't make much sense. It seems like there's no mourning or crying or pain in heaven at all. And there's certainly no mourning on the part of Abraham and Lazarus in that parable. None. So you're like, well, how is that even possible? Well, it's because every good thing you ever loved in, an, in a reprobate person was a temporary gift of God to them. Right? I mean, have you ever met people that they died without any evidence of ever having come to faith in Christ? 
whole life died. But there were things about that person that you really loved. We call them common grace blessings, right? It could be, you know, a, a kind of an atheist aunt that baked delicious cookies, right? And she was really friendly and sweet on you and cared a lot about you and contributed a lot, like gave a lot of money at your wedding or something like that or helped you help pay for your education, did a lot of good things, right? But they never loved Jesus. Never. They didn't love Jesus. Well, all of the goodness you saw in those people will be taken from them. It's, it's all God in them, and it's all gone. So they're not, they're not those same people anymore. Does that make sense? They're, they're not. There's nothing beautiful about it. So, you know, I, I thought about all this. I don't think there's any meditation I've ever done in theology that's been more difficult to hear than this. But it's, it's rooted right in this chapter. It's rooted right in, in what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, dot, dot, dot. It's right there. All right, also the final statement. Um, can somebody go to the, uh, Isaiah 66, the last part of Isaiah 66? Uh, you can all go there if you want, but just somebody um, read the last two verses of Isaiah's magnificent visionary pro- prophecy. It's the last two verses, I think. I think so, yeah, last two verses. Um. From one moon, from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will the fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. All right, so that phrase, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, does that sound familiar to you? Uh-huh. Jesus quoted it talking about hell. He got it right from Isaiah. But let's look specifically at what Isaiah says. They, in the context, the redeemed, will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they'll be loathsome to all mankind. That seems like an eternal education in the justice and righteousness of God in dealing with those rebels. Does that make sense? So that's the wholeness. Of what we're, now, why is this topic difficult for us? Because the rules of engagement now are radically different than the rules that will be then. They're just completely different rules. Paul already told us how we should think about those on their way to hell. Now, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, did Jesus display that kind of sorrow? Yes, by weeping over Jerusalem. Is Jesus weeping now in heaven? No, he doesn't weep in heaven. There's no weeping in heaven. All right? Now you could say you could be weeping now over people still en route. I would say all weeping, all sorrow over damnation in the Bible is for those who haven't died yet. They're not there yet. Does that make sense? The people who are not there yet, you weep over them. Why? Why do you weep over those who are on the road to destruction? As Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, etc. Why weep over those people and not over those who are damned? Why do we weep over those en route to hell? Because we feel like they still have a chance. There's still a chance. So the weeping is a motivator for the missionaries and evangelists and saved family members to do what? Share the gospel with them. For us as messengers, we do the weeping. Are, the, are those en route to hell weeping over their own souls? No, they're happy. They're laughing and with the, Job said tambourines. They got tambourines out. 
They're not weeping. Who's weeping? People who know where they're heading. They're the ones weeping. We weep on their behalf. We grieve on their behalf. We just don't do that in heaven. That makes sense? You don't do it in heaven because they're there. There's nothing else. It's just their eternal display of the justice and wrath and righteousness of God. And that's why it's hard. It's like, do you have enough brain space to understand the different rules of engagement and, and act accordingly? That's all. There's nothing really for us to act on concerning this meditation in heaven. I'm just saying this is where we're going. We're going to a world with no sorrow, but perfect knowledge. And that's very deep. Does that make sense? So the fullness of Revelation 22, 23 is in this meditation of the education uh, of the damned. You know, and it's really deep too. Uh, I call the chapter the knowledge of the damned or memories of the damned, sorry, memories of the damned. And it's a, a two way of looking at it. Memories that the redeemed will have of the damned. And then there's the memories that the damned will have themselves. Will they have any regretful memories? Doesn't Abraham call on the rich man to remember? Remember, son, that when you were alive, dot, dot, dot. He wants him to remember what his life was about. Will there be any death, mourning, crying, and pain for those in hell? I'm saying nothing but death, mourning, crying, and pain for those in hell. That's all they have are regrets. Quite a bit more. They just continue to regret and regret and regret. So that's, that's what we're dealing with here concerning, concerning the reprobate. All right, so any other questions? I know that's heavy. I've been through this with numbers of people like kind of st stunned. But at the same time, I think it's consistent with what Paul's teaching here. Yeah. One, one Um, well, because we're heading in the rest of Romans 9 to this climax of, you know, the, right. we're going to extend the purpose to Gentile nations, right? We're, mm. we're going to end this chapter on the, on, the, on the theme of the nation. Right. Well, how would you, how would you link, if, look at verse 23 and 24, look at the nexus, or, or back in, in Romans 9, just look at, at, um, the nexus here. What if he did this? To make the riches of his glory known to who? The objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. What's the next part? Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So I would say Jews and Gentiles are big groupings, and individuals are taken up out of those groupings. So in the end, it's individual. Everybody will stand before God on Judgment Day as individuals, not as nations, you know, being dealt with generally as a nation. So Paul, I think clearly here with bringing up Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh, he's talking about individuals, individual people. And they come from Jews and Gentiles, but they are individuals. All right, so that's a good question though. All right, so even us whom we also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now let's talk. We've got 12 minutes to do Hosea. So let's talk about Hosea. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, 
and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. All right, so let's, uh, let's talk about this. First of all, why does Paul emphasize here that the vessels of mercy are called by God from both Jews and Gentiles? Why does he bring that up? Why does he want us to know that the vessels of mercy come from both Jews and Gentiles? Or anybody? Uh, I think it's because he's talking to a group of Jews and Gentiles. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Roman church. Yeah. It wasn't it a mixed church? Yeah. Paul's audience changes constantly in Romans. He openly tells us sometimes, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Other times he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, blah, blah, blah. It's just different. They're just different audiences. It's like he's in this big amphitheater. It's like, all right, now I'm going to talk to you, all right? And now I've got you, you know, whatever. So he's got different, but it's definitely a mixed group. And he wants us all to know that the elect are coming from both Jews and Gentiles, not just from the Jews. Okay, it's very, very important. Now, how do these two quotes from Hosea enhance the mercy and grace of God in all the elect? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So how does that teach us God's mercy and grace? Is that election? Yeah. Okay. Well, we have to like understand Hosea's story. Like who's Hosea? Well, he's a prophet. One of the things about prophets, occasionally, part of the job description is God would ask you to do some very strange things in your life. Yes. I mean, Isaiah went around stripped and barefoot for two years talking about what would happen to the refugees that were having to flee. Now, that's an odd job. All right. I remember preaching about that. You know, people are like, all right, what are you going to say about Isaiah walking around stripped and barefoot? Like how stripped is stripped? I said, like stripped enough. All right. We don't need to use our imagination. But that was a weird job description. Ezekiel was tied up and had to lay on one side for 390 days and then on his other side for 45 days or something like that, representing number of years of rebellion. That's a hard job. Actually, at one point, his wife died and he wasn't allowed to weep or mourn over her. So those are just, that's job description for prophets. Let's talk now about Hosea. What strange thing was he asked to do or commanded to do by God? Marry Gomer, the one of the town prostitutes. All right. So why? Why was he told to marry a prostitute? Well, to symbolize God's relationship with Israel, with his people. How does that symbolize his relationship with his people, marrying a prostitute. Israel's behavior was offensive to God, so undeserved that he loved it so much. So it's often portrayed as a kind of spiritual adultery. Like they're married, and she's going after other, other men the way Israel is going after other gods. So God is jealous over that. And so this is the picture, this idea. And so going at, and at one point he has to go buy Gomer back and spend money on her. They're married and he's got to go buy her time. And like, you're not allowed to be with any other men. All right. Just me. 
It's really shameful. It's a, it's a bad scene. But before we even get to that, that's in chapter 3. In chapter 1, they get married. And it says, Gomer conceived and bore him a son. Him being Hosea. And uh, the Lord said, call him Jezreel. So this couple didn't get to name their own kids. God was naming the kids. So, all right. So name him Jezreel. Then she gets pregnant again. We'll just say it that way. She gets pregnant again. And the second uh, child she has is a daughter. But it's a different verbiage. First time it was she conceived and bore him a son. This time it didn't say that. She just got pregnant and bore a daughter. What's the clear implication? Jose is not the father of that girl. So the name given to her was uh, not loved. Not loved. That's her name. She's not loved. Not loved specifically by, by uh, Hosea the father. It's like, you know, you can well imagine just at the human level, it's very hard to love a child born to your wife from another man. Hard to do. And so that's the name. And then, again, same pattern, same verbal pattern. She gets pregnant again and has another child. Again, doesn't bear him the child. So he's not the father of that one either. And God gives him the name Loami, which is not my people. Or keeping it simple, not mine. <laughs> These are my kids. This is Jezreel, not loved and not mine. It's very shameful. It's a shameful family. See what I'm saying? But these, these names are symbolic of God's relationship with uh, his people. So then God shows amazing grace to wicked wandering Israel, linking Israel to the names of these kids. He says in Hosea 2.23, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. Who's he talking about there? He's not talking about the little girl, the little boy. You know, he's talking about Israel. I'm going to show love to the one I didn't love. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Who's he talking about there? The Jews. And by bringing them back in by his grace and his love, he's showing incredible mercy. He's showing just, just sovereign grace. It's incredible. With, but it's all within the Jews. All right? And then uh, Hosea 1.10 is the other quote. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Again, just talking about the Jews. But is Paul, when he quotes this, only talking about the Jews? No. Would not the Jews, in their nationalistic pride, say that they are God's people, right? And that the Gentiles are what? Not God's people. You see what's happening here? Hosea, the prophet, redefines those terms by basically saying to the entire human race, Jews and Gentiles, all of you, in your starting place, spiritually, you are not loved and you are not my people. You all start there. And if you end up loved and my people, it's because of my sovereign grace. That's very humbling. And he's going to sum all this up at the end, right before the uh, doxology, he will say, God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on them all. Mm. So everyone in heaven is humble. Does that make sense? We're all humbled because we don't have any genetic or genealogical inside track. We all were on the outside and we all had to be brought in, starting not my people, 
we become his people. Starting not loved, we are loved. That's how these quotes from Hosea function. Does that make sense? So you've got to know the backstory, but I think that's what's going on here. God is humbling the elect, and he's also humbling the nationalistic pride of the Jews by their own spiritual adultery and all that, their wandering ways. All right, any comments or questions about that? All right, let me finish. I want to say, I got three more minutes. I want to use them. Let's, it's not on the sheet, but I want to get to 27 through 29, then we can begin next time at 30. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence on earth with speed and finality. What does that mean? Only the remnant will be saved. What is a remnant? Yeah, so it goes back to not all Israel are Israel. It's the group within the group, all right? The men uh, that came out in the Exodus were 600,000, all right? That's the number of men, plus women and children, right? So imagine equal number of women, 600,000, so that's 1.2 million. And then let's say they had good-sized families. So how many people do you think went out of, went across the Red Sea, you know, how many people were, at least, that's with families like one and two per. So we could, we could be looking at 2.5 to 3.5 or 4 million people. Similar number 40 years later. I think they're all the ones that died were replaced because again, you got about 600,000 men with that census as well. So you're looking at three or four million now, you talk about the remnant that came back under Ezra, Nehemiah, all that. How many came back after the exiles? 42,000. So per percentage-wise, what is that? That's like, you know, maybe one-tenth or somewhere between one-seventh to one-tenth that came back. That's what a remnant is. And what Isaiah said is, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors... We would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What does that mean? We would have been like Sodom or Gomorrah. Well, what was left of Sodom and Gomorrah? Nothing. What was left of God's judgments on Israel with the exiles? Not nothing. Not nothing. There's still some left. But what is Isaiah saying about if you compare Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, how is Isaiah comparing them? Are they different? Israel's so much more righteous. Israel's better than Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he's saying they are Sodom and Gomorrah. And he actually openly says that in Isaiah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. He directly calls them that. He says you're no different. So again, all of this is sovereign grace humbled out of the same lump of wretched, sinful, wicked clay God makes some vessels for glory. That's amazing. So that's what Romans 9 is. So we got to the end of Romans 9. Any questions? Well, I guess we have one more little part about stumbling over the stumbling stone. We'll do that next time. Any final comments or questions about this? Yeah, Greg. If, if we go from, say, 4, 4 million to 42,000, we're talking more like 100. Oh, yeah, that's right. One, one out of 100. I'm tired. I did bad math today. So, yes, one out of 100. I missed the decimal point. Yeah, so one out of 100. Well, for that, you get to close us in prayer. Thank you. Go ahead, Greg. Thank you. Please, please do. Uh, Father, we, we have been looking at uh, this chapter 
We know when we come to a word, obviously you have something that's kind of very deep about, about who you are, and it takes us into things that, that show your glory and, and goodness in ways that uh, are sometimes difficult for us to apprehend and understand. But we know that uh, when we come to you in heaven, when you bring us home, uh, these things will be uh, things that you're, you're going to uh, transform, finish that work of transforming us to be into the likeness of Christ. And we're going to just glory in these things and be glad that you that this is characteristic of you. And so, Father, we give you the glory, all the glory right now. And we pray that you would continue to form us and shape us and help us to understand. And we pray that uh, uh, whenever we encounter uh, the deep things in your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your and give you the, the glory and praise that you are doing. We thank you for this time together now in Jesus' name. Amen.